So that also pushes me to say, go and see it before you can't see it. Drive your car before you can't drive. Do the things you're going to miss when you only have one eye. And that's almost more pushing than the heart in many ways, because your heart you kind of don't feel very often, but your eyes all the time, even when your eyes are closed. Welcome to Invisible Not Broken. Today, we're talking about growing up sick, having a public body, and adventuring. Our host, Monica, is joined by author Emily Falcon. Emily, I have been so excited to talk to you for so many reasons. I feel like there's just so much that we have in common, and I've been so excited to talk to another person who was a sick kid, and you wrote a whole book about it. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I did. I've been sick since I was born and diagnosed at seven weeks old. Yes. I do have the upside for you that you didn't have to go through the merry-go-round of what could you possibly have, but that sounds horribly stressful. Do you want to tell everyone what you went through when you were seven weeks old and what your whole family went through? That's a lot. Yes, because they did go through that merry-go-round. I had a heart attack at seven weeks old. It was the one day as a baby that I cried, so my mom knew something wasn't right. But the doctors, of course, said babies cry. You, There's no need to bring a baby that's crying in. But the next day I vomited. So they let me come in and they listened to my heart and they said, oh, oh no, something's very wrong. And they sent me immediately to Massachusetts General Hospital where they knew I was having a heart attack, but it did take a while to figure out my condition, which is called anomalous origin of the left coronary artery, alcarpa. You might think of the animal alcarpa. And that's what it's very rare. About one in 300,000 have this heart condition. And before me, most everybody died, I was always told. So they really didn't know what to do with me, even though they might have known what was wrong with me. You are the youngest person to get gaslit by the medical community, as far as I know. That's that's an impressive thing to put on your resume. So what happened after that? Did you have to have like a, a neonatal surgery or? So since they were unsure. They consulted with other hospitals and doctors. And the doctors at Boston Children's wanted to do the surgery right away, but the Mass General doctors did not. And they wanted to wait for me to grow larger because then there'd be less chance of having to do more surgeries in the future. So I had tests and medicine and my valve was leaking quite a lot from the heart attack. It was damaged. So that was more the bigger problem at that time. So we just tried to monitor it, kept going and waiting and waiting until there was no more waiting when I was six and we had to do the surgery. Then a first grader who's just starting to figure out I'm a mom of two and I raised a whole bunch of kids. That's kind of the age where they're starting to get used to their bodies and they're really excited to move and run around. And you have the best title for your book for this. So I'm going to let you explain you know, the title of your book because it feels, it's like a gut punch in so many ways. Just those words. I was like, oh, I, I remember that feeling. It's called From the Sidelines to the Finish Line because I've always sat out on most activities most of my life. I was never allowed to play sports with friends, do gym class at school, just basically run outside and play by myself even. I always had to rest and be careful of germs and I never really felt like I was living in a cocoon because I didn't know that wasn't normal. And I could play with my sister in the house, but we never, little younger sister, we never played outside. And I did go to school. So I just thought, oh, like I work in the office during gym class. That's kind of cool. And I go and get medicine. And there's one other kid in my class that does that, but I don't know. But when there's sports, definitely I don't get to do anything in gym class. I'm always doing something else or sitting there. So that wasn't so great because I was envious, of course. Like any kid, I wanted to run and play, but I just couldn't. And I napped every day when I came home from school. I was out when it was too hot in the summer. My mom kept me home. Just so many little things, like I couldn't have very much salt. 
And so I could never buy my lunch at school. Just so many things you don't you take for granted, I think, as a kid. Did it change your relationships with grownups because you were so, well, like when you're, most kids are socializing and learning how to like bump into each other, you were removed from that and you were put in with grownups. Always. I've always been better friends with grownups than kids my age because I spent more time with them and they could understand my limitations better. Even though kids don't ask you and they don't push you or try to explain, it'd be kind of hard to say like, well, I can't go and play with you, whoever. So I would just be with the grownups and doing grownup things like organizing the supply class, in the office, sending out mailings to my friends in class, official mailings from the office. So yeah, it was hard, but you know, I had dolls, I could play dolls with them. I could watch TV with them. So there, I still had friends and people came over for my birthday parties and everything, just didn't do active things. Was there anything that the adults in your life did when you were a kid that helped that made it more manageable? Anything like for, as we get a lot of people who listen who are parents who have his kids have just gotten diagnosis and everyone's kind of wondering like how do how do we navigate this keeping a kid safe and still having good experiences or is there anything that the grown-ups did that really made this easier i'm not sure about that but as a grown-up person now i could say what i wish might have happened let's do that one too i i haven't coffee yet so i can go for the full negative let's do that one <laughs> i wish that i had been treated more like well you could try that and see how it goes instead of just no because it was never an immediate panic that I'm going to have another heart attack or I'm going to drop dead or something crazy is going to happen scary like that. I always knew when to rest if I had done something active. So I wish I had been told you could try to kick the ball there, friend. And if it's too much, just stop. That's fine. And I think that a lot of cardiac patients now are told they can do that, which is great. And another thing I highly encourage is camp. I went to Open Hearts Camp and I know there's not a camp for every condition, of course not, but there's a community where you can make friends with other people who have your condition. It's so great because the kids at camp and I felt like the one person who visited one day without a scar was the weirdo. And for once, it wasn't us who were the weirdos with the strange bodies and the medicine and the limitations. And even I went to a camp that wasn't for Open Hearts children either, but just being free from the parents and being able to try things without the watchful eye, because you know your body, hopefully, by the time you can go to camp. So I'd say freedom when you can, but no, make sure your child is knowledgeable about what they really shouldn't do if there's an immediate danger, but that they can try there's a chance. I love what you said because this goes so far beyond just kids. I, as an adult, have had to move towards wheelchair mostly full time. And it, just that language of let me just try. Let me see if I can do it. Like I might, I might fall. It could happen. But if we're not talking about imminent death, at least give it like just to be able to have that autonomy to make your own choices about what you feel safe doing. Yeah. My original title for the book was just try. That's my main message. You had some good titles there. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> and if I ask anything you feel uncomfortable, just go, you know what? Next question. No problem. But I was also a really sick kid, but we didn't know what was wrong. So it was like, this could be fentanyl. You could be dying. Yeah, I was in and out of hospitals the whole time. And I ended up with this really weird feeling. And I keep thinking of like Lynn Emanuel, uh, where he's talking about like, I, just give me that pen. I'm running out of time. And everything I did felt so important. Like I need to get everything done as quick as I can and go to the wall with everything because I didn't. And doctors are like, I don't know, you might make it to 30, maybe, maybe mid 20, like, who knows? <laughs> I was wondering how that worked for you. If you had that same sense of mortality, really like way younger than most kids get mortality. And if that affected, because you do a lot of cool stuff, and did that affect you and like your adventurous spirit and also the things you want to accomplish? So many things to say back to this great question. 
So when I was younger, I don't think I felt that way because I always thought I'd be a one surgery patient and I never thought I'd need to again unless my ring had to be replaced for a larger one, but I never thought that would be a life-threatening thing. And it was it was more in a sense, well, no one knows what's going to happen to you. There's no examples that are older than you, but I didn't mean that it meant death. It just meant we don't know. So I never focused on that, but I was never afraid to die. I never felt weird about talking about it. Not that anyone asked me like you have, but I never had a sense of that. I always felt very much like, well, if I die, I die. That's it. I tried. As I got older and now that I've had a second open heart surgery at age 35, it's very different. And I feel very much on a time crunch because I got a new bowel and it can only be replaced three times in a lifetime. And it will only last about 10 years or more, depending on how much I do. So I very much feel like, oh, this last August, I've reached past my halfway point with this. So I very much now feel I can't sit still. I have to be active and take advantage of everything because even I could have any condition again tomorrow, not this valve replacement. I've learned because I also have glaucoma in my eye. So I'm losing vision quite rapidly. So that also pushes me to say, go and see it before you can't see it. Drive your car before you can't drive. Do the things you're going to miss when you only have one eye. And that's almost more pushing than the heart in many ways, because your heart, you kind of don't feel very often, but your eyes all the time, even when your eyes are closed. So I do feel that sense now very much. I absolutely hear you, especially I, I, I'm a professional artist. And before I got really sick, I was a photographer. And that was always my like bargaining chip with whatever higher power or whatever else is out there in the universe was fine. Legs, decorative. Eyes are non-negotiable. I believe everything before that. I know we just sound insensitive, but I just want to say like, I understand like where you're coming. Like, it's the things that we are super attached to. And it's always the things that people are like, wait a minute, that's your thing? <laughs> that one, I know legs are decorative. Trust me, wheelchairs are awesome. Like You can still function. I feel like, you know, I'd, I'm still going to be able to function with one eye. It turns out it's legal to drive with one eye and everything. It's just going to be a little different, but it's not the end of the world. None of my conditions I've ever felt are the end of the world. They're so much worse. Like I could be in a coma forever. Then what's the point of any of this? So, you know, this I've always told myself, it's going to be your turn and then it's going to be someone else's. So just appreciate the moments you have, even if they're limited. What do you think of how the media portrays disability, chronic illness? Uh, because what you're talking about is so antithetical to what I feel like we get shown, which is... I can't wait to, I, I I will die to get out of my wheelchair. I will die to get out of the sick body. And I feel like all of us that I talk to are like, oh no, sick body, we can deal. I just want to go do the things. Yes, that's a hard question. So I can definitely probably count and say aloud every character on TV or every celebrity in real life that I know has a heart condition because I definitely see, seek out those type of stories in the media. And I can think of a character on General Hospital who had a heart transplant, but she was in the hospital like a week and then it was fine. If you ever watched Grey's Anatomy, the character Callie had heart surgery after a car accident. She had a scar for one episode and then it was gone. So scars are never normalized. Her limitations from whatever happened to her during her accident were mostly gone forever after the season. And there are a few movies where people have had heart surgery, but it's not as realistic. It's, it's just like they get better. I don't think it's right. People don't know they're taking pills. They can't have salt. They have to think about what restaurant they're going to. Or if it's hot out, if there's a hill, if there's stairs. Like I think about these things all the time. Just getting a gallon of milk is too much for me. I have to get smaller things. I have to pretty much live in a house without stairs because if I don't feel well, it's too much. There's no TV about these things. So I definitely think it's better to watch a reality show than a, maybe a fictional show to see these things portrayed. 
but I can't think of a perfect example except for when I was younger, I really liked St. Jude's programming about children with cancer because although it was different, those children were going through and they showed their day-to-day struggles. Very realistically, I felt like it was, oh, it was a fundraising program. Maybe it was skewed. I don't know. But that's the most I could relate to when I was younger for this kind of thing. To Hollywood, like, hey, can you please, a reality show is fine. I mean, I, I can flip a table if you'll at least like bandage my wrist afterwards. Like just give us some actual representation so we can see this. Was there anything post-surgery that surprised you? Oh, yes. Um, my taste for food changed. So I really like root beer and now I don't like it anymore. I used to like mustard. It tastes funny to me. And I never liked drinking alcohol that much because it would make my heart beat funny and it didn't feel that good. And a week or so after the surgery, all I wanted was alcohol. Not to be drunk. I just wanted it. Who knows why? And the one thing that's persisted is I always want white breasts now. I do so well, right? So those are very surprising things. No one ever explained what happened. We would have had no idea. Speaking of having no idea, was there anything that you would like people to know about friends, family, people in their lives that they could do for someone post-surgery that would really make their post-surgery better and easier? I think cards and I didn't really want to be on the phone. I didn't want emails or people visiting me. I don't like people to see me that way. But if you'd like it, of course, visit someone. I think that's a huge pick-me-up. My family came every day. I don't think I could have done it without them. But just getting real physical cards was great. And then I could decorate my hospital room. It didn't feel so hospitally. And then I have them forever when I get home and I might feel down and I can reread them for encouragement, which I've always liked. And I do like balloons. But not everyone likes balloons. But I think they really brighten up a room. And more than flowers in a way. To me, I like balloons because you can keep it forever. And kind of go just speak, just send kind words. Maybe don't focus so much on the surgery. Just treat them like before and say, did you watch that show yet? Or whatever you used to talk about with them. That's such an important thing. It, it can feel... I mean, I felt like it was like Titanic when I got really sick, like when I couldn't hide how sick I was anymore. With like, it was just this incredible outflux of all of my friends. And it just felt so lonely as no one knew what to say anymore. They couldn't ask me about work and everything just, I guess, felt fraught to them. So it was just this, my life wasn't normal to begin with, but then it was like, now I have nothing to talk to anyone about. And I didn't know how to, I still am not sure if I know how to carry a conversation at this point, but. I think we're different because I don't talk about my condition pretty much ever. This is the first time with the book I'm even talking about it publicly. So I never had that connection with the friends that they would ask, how are you all the time? It would be all the other stuff because I didn't want them to know any of this. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I have to tell you when I quote unquote came out of the closet, like, and it felt like that. It felt like I was going to lose my friends. It felt like I was going to lose my business. It felt like my kids were going to have to do this massive shift. And it was just this point that I could not hide. I literally couldn't hide it anymore. I was falling down at photo shoots. And it was the scariest thing I think I've done in a very long time was say, I'm disabled. And it was so like I was swearing. And I hate that the internalized ableism was so real to me. Can you talk about how you feel about that? Because I know this is very new for you. This is the first time you're actually openly discussing this. Are you worried about a fallout? Oh, for sure. I think people have very strange preconceived notions and they might come from the media. They might come from people they actually know. I don't know where these strange things come from, but that's part of why I hate telling people. So when I had to tell a boss who I'd known for years, we'd worked together for years, never had come up before. And then the minute she knew the next day when we had to take stairs to go to a meeting, are you sure you're okay on the stairs? Yes, I've been with you for five years. You've never asked me. You've never noticed either. Why are you asking me now? So that's the kind of thing I don't like. 
And then from then on, whenever you take a vacation, it's like, are you out sick? No, I'm taking vacation. So I very much wish that kind of thing would be normalized. And I do feel like people are staring at my eye all the time, but maybe they're not. I don't know. But to me, it's very obvious. And so I feel very self-conscious, but my eye has made it much harder to hide because you can't hide an eye as well as a hard scar. But little things like seats on the train, on the subway. I don't look like I need a seat, of course, because I'm not in a wheelchair or whatever it is, a cane. And... But I do sometimes when it's hot or I'm carrying a lot, I might be suffering, but I don't say get out of the seat. I do have a medical alert necklace, but I would never put that in someone's face to say get out of the seat. But I have found on my travels around the world in Japan, they actually have visual aids that say for pregnant people, elderly, disabled, and they have a heart highlighted, which I've never seen anywhere in the world else. It's very cool. And you didn't have, you obviously don't have to say anything. You can just sit in the seat, which I greatly appreciate. So maybe someone might look at me and think I have a hard problem at that point, or they might think who knows something else with those images. So it's, I don't, it's a hard question, but it's, it's just, I feel people treat you differently, which is the root of why I don't tell because they can't understand. So this is partially why I'm sharing. I hope people can understand more when they read the book, what it's like to have this type of condition or sickness your whole life. Just be understanding and don't judge people by their outside because you, as you know, it's invisible. You can't always tell someone needs help and you should just be kind. The world is chaos, be kind. Yeah, which is very hard. I'm not saying I'm the best at it and being kind all the time. Never, of course not. But I don't judge someone who needs to see it no matter what. It brings so many wonderful things in what you just said. And one of the things, I hope I'm understanding you correctly, and maybe it's just projection on my part, but the idea of you lose autonomy almost, you almost become infantilized when you say I'm disabled. It's like all of a sudden someone knows better than you what you should be eating, whether you should be taking those stairs, whether you should be using your wheelchair or your cane. Like that's the one that drives me the most batshit crazy. Like editors, go ahead and leave that in. I'm hurting, I get to swear. But It drives me insane that all of a sudden, like me in my almost 50 year old body suddenly do not know whether I should do something. And someone who doesn't even know how to pronounce my disorder now has somehow like an opinion on whether I should or shouldn't. You're totally right. I was at a party after my surgery where the surgeon was talking about me. And then the people who were there came up to talk to me. And one of mine said, you're drinking. How can you be allowed to do that? I'm I'm not 21. I know how to do that. And someone said, but you have such great color, which is sort of a different thing than babying, but it's some of those preconceived notions. And like, where are you getting this from? And someone said, why don't you have a limp? Why would I have a limp? Because my heart isn't so great. I don't get that. So it's, I was getting a beeline away from that person. I'd be so scared of that person. I just don't step on my feet. I, I'm, I'm a chicken. I don't think I'm as brave as you. And I just mean smile. I am so much older than you. And I'm so much more. No, you're not. Bitch than you. <laughs> no, I'm the most kind when it comes down to I'm just not as nice. No, I'm furious inside. And the way I show it is with a huge smile, which is completely wrong. But that's what I do. So the bigger I just smile, the matter I am thing is was my kids were asked like what does your mom do when she gets really mad and they're like oh she gets really quiet and i just started howling not this was like it was just i, I think that may might have like a very similar response system which is like oh i'm gonna wait a minute before it respond to anything like just let me process that one we were talking about bodies like and you seem to have a lot of awareness of how people see you via scar or via eye i don't know if you've had children but like i just what we're talking about feels so similar to me. Like when I was pregnant, I was like a public body. And 
I had this, which I was really surprised after I had these children, when I started using a cane and a wheelchair, how my body became public again. People had opinion about what it should look like, what it should be doing, what I should be ingesting. I mean, like all of a sudden someone was telling me about coconut oil. Apparently it was going to cure cancer and everything else. Yeah. Like the unsolicited advice became a big thing. It sounds like thing you're dealing with where people have like opinions on your skin color, on your your lack of a limp, whether you want alcohol or not. I'm just amazed at what points our bodies become public. Yes. And even as a woman, it's very hard to dress because I don't want like, you know, you're supposed to show your cleavage, but maybe I don't want to because exactly where my scar is or choosing a bathing suit is very challenging because there's also scars on my tummy. And I, I don't want people seeing. I once went on a date in high school. The boy didn't know, of course, and was at a pool. And he said, what's that? And I was like, oh, that the first time I realized it was a problem and a sexual problem. I can't just go with someone to a bedroom because they're going to notice. And I'm going to have to explain it, even though I don't want to, maybe. I do feel like you need to explain to dates or friends. And how do you go about that and decide when to? This is a big question we get in our community. And I am very lucky I married my best friend. He knew everything before we even thought about dating. So I have no advice. So as I said, I'm very private. I try to wait to the last minute to tell someone unless I absolutely have to because I've never actually had a problem where I actually need someone immediately. You know, I have my necklace, so I've never felt the need. I must tell someone without a reason. So a friend, I might never tell. A work friend, I probably would never tell. And I would just say when I'm out for a procedure, I'm on a medical leave and I wouldn't say why. And with the more like really good, good friends that aren't like work friend or whatever, it's going to be a long-term friend. It would probably come up somehow. They invite me somewhere where I must wear a bathing suit or they're doing something I just can't do. Say something at high elevation. I fall asleep. I can't go. It's obvious. So I lived in Alaska after my second surgery. And everyone there was extremely skilled and they looked hiking and all these things. And I kept telling myself, it's a walk. You can do it. Just go. But I tried not to explain why I was behind people. I would just say, I'm going to be behind. I'm going to be slower than you. Please just wait for me at the end. And I wouldn't tell them why. And they never asked. But then when I had a romantic partner, I thought, oh, well, he's going to see. I have to tell. But I, we had been on many hikes before and I hadn't told him why I was slow. I had just done this speech of wait for me. But then I had to tell. Because maybe it's just being nude when you have to. I feel I must tell. Or if I'm having a sleepover, someone's going to see my medicine. I can't hide that. And I can't go on a random sleepover without my medicine. So I have to prepare ahead. So I can't be spontaneous in that way. So it's, it's kind of case by case, but I try not to. More about writing a biography or autobiography. Did that shift your perspective on yourself, people around you? What was that process like? An autobiography is never just about you. It's about the situation and the people around you. How did that shift your focus, I guess? So I tried not to have too many characters in the book, but my family has to be in it, but I have to respect their privacy. So it was a little hard because I wanted to say details, but I couldn't. And obviously a lot of this happened when I was little, I couldn't remember. So I read my dad's diaries and I would ask him for his memories. And I think it was very hard for him emotionally to go through all that again. So I had to be respectful of all that. And then my best friend from Open Heart Camp, who also has a heart condition, helped me because she's in the book quite a bit, Mabel. And she's very strong. She never has hit her condition. She has no problem showing her scars or talking about anything. So I kept telling myself, be like her, be brave when I was writing because I'm more like a robot and I don't want to talk about feelings, but I kept having to push myself and feel things and get them out. And 
Now that they're out, I don't have to replay my memories in my head from when I was little anymore. I used to replay the surgery when I was six in my head quite often to just remember everything all the time. I didn't want to forget anything. And now that I've written it down, I don't do that anymore. So I think it's been very cathartic. Sounds like a release. (laughs) I read a few interviews of you from other interviews. And one of the things you talked about was self-motivation. And I would love to hear a little bit more about that, if for no other reason than for advice. Well, gosh. So, you know, I love TV. I want to sit on the couch and lay like a bum all the time. But I tell myself, get up. You don't know how much time you have. And even if it's just dancing to a song in the living room, it's something because you might not be able to do that in the future. Or, you know, I really like to read magazines. So read them while you still can. Like, you know, because it's going to be different with what And I just focus on the time. You have a limited amount of time. Don't forget it. Even though you feel good right now, you know tomorrow you might not. Even something as simple as COVID, which I was struck with for the first time recently, that knocked me out and it brought back a lot of feelings of feeling like I can't do anything. I'm never going to get better. Even though everyone goes through COVID, it seems. But to me, it felt a big deal and I was sure I'd have to go to the hospital. I'd never be able to handle it by myself. But I did and I kept motivating every day. Like, do one thing. Yes, you're sick, but you're going to get better. You can't give up because you're sick with one thing because you really will regret it in 20 years when that ability is gone. You bring up such a great thing. And there's a another person, I forgot her name. I'm so sorry because she's amazing and she has the same disorder I have. She talks about just getting one foot on the ladder and you might not get another step up on the ladder. But if you just like have that one thing that you do every day that you know that you will do no matter what, like brushing your teeth, you call that your first step. And then if you brushed your teeth and you're like, I can do it, then you move on to the next thing. And the next thing you might fall all the way off that ladder and end up back in bed. But if you just take that first step and you see that as your first step to your day, that's just something that personally insults me. I have no idea if anyone else, but even down changing like our household up to make it easier to take that step. So I'm talking to you from my bedroom because I text up, I think it's three months break from the podcast because I couldn't get to my office, which just looks outside the house, but I couldn't get there, sit at the computer and then get back to my bed. So we've moved my office next to my bed's right there. So I could just do what I did today, which is roll out of bed into my office chair, talk to you. After we're done, I will roll back and become the corpse back over there. No, no. But it's just like, I think that this is such a good discussion because I think people have an idea of what things have to look like. I'm going to write a book. I will go to my office. I will sit at my desk. I will write. Well, that's not for you. Like, Yeah, no, no. I never feel that thing. I've never been so conventional that I feel everything has to be the same way. I'm never going to have a TV life. I'm never going to have a TV family or a TV house. I just have the things I like and I need. And that's enough for me. So I like sparkles. So if I don't feel surrounded by sparkles, I'm probably going to have a bad day. So I, you know, when I, when I'm laying in the bed, I have to be able to see sparkles. Or when I'm in the hospital on a doctor appointment where I'm really scared, I try to wear a sparkly shoe because that's my one step I can do that's still me, makes me feel like me. And I just do it. I think it's so silly to have these set ideas and conventions. Like I was never told I could have children. No one knew if I could. So it's never been something I want. So it's not, not something I push, but it's just not the life I want. I want to go on trips. I want to have a family, of course, but not a babies of my own. It's, it would be too hard for me to even lift a child really past 15 pounds. A child needs to be held. That's not fair. And it's just setting expectations for what you need and what you like and I don't know how to explain it more than just find what you need to get through these hard times, even if it's like a piece of or a candy, anything silly. It doesn't matter if that's the thing that makes you feel like a human and feel good for the hour of the day and the rest you feel awful. That's enough. 
What a wonderful way to describe that. Like for you, it sparkled. My 16-year-olds got me obsessed with everything kawaii. So now my like phone case definitely looks like a 13-year-old phone case. It's cute. It makes me happy. Like I just, I love what you're saying. Is that like you just find something that makes you feel delight and joy. And a human and like not a medical piece of experiment. Even if you're not in charge of your body or what's going to happen or how you feel or what the doctor's going to make you do, you still have that one thing like that is you. They can't take away. You know, as we're talking about this, this brings me back to what you had said about Japan, about that that one little thing they did, which was the seat with the heart, with the pregnancy, with the like all the different things. You're at a point where you're at a crossroads. And I know when I became disabled, there were so many things that shocked me. I was like, wait a minute, that's a thing? I'm sorry, wait, what? This would have been so much easier if this was different, like the just having that signage. And for you, it's magazines. What can you see right now that you know is going to be a problem? And what do you hope? could actually solve that problem that society could take on? Well, always escalators are always quite helpful. And there's only a stair or a hill. I really enjoy those. And air conditioning is a huge help when it's available. Let's see, public transportation that doesn't have stairs to get in. Because some parts of the Boston subway, you must take the stairs. And it's very hard for me when I have a suitcase and no one gets up to help you, of course. For me, those are the biggest challenge. Now that we have home delivery of groceries, that's actually a huge step in the right direction because they don't have to carry everything in anymore. And that's been great. A huge benefit. And I wise, I'd say just patience, like people, because I've noticed a little bit when I'm outside, I might not see someone to my side anymore and I might walk into them or whatever it is and just have patience and know that I didn't do it on purpose because it looks like I have an eye that works, but you can't tell. Of course, it's not crop clouded over. So it's a little hard and I have to wear sunglasses. I noticed at the office the other day for the first time, the light was really bothering me. And when people say hurtful things like, oh, are you a movie star? Are you a vampire? Why are you wearing those? Like, just don't say those kind of things. Leave it alone and treat your friend as they are not wearing sunglasses because they probably don't want to talk about it. You're much nicer than I am. I could absolutely go into drinking blood jokes immediately. I can't think of those things fast enough. I, I'm much meaner than you. I swear you heard very nice. You should see me at the front desk. I'm a project person, not a people person feel that. So I'm running out of time talking to you and I want to like kidnap you all day. And so I'm just trying to think of like, what's the best thing to possibly ask you? And I'm going to ask you about your adventure prep because I'm obsessed with your adventures. The pictures of you hanging out with wolves. I mean, I have my own little personal lap wolf with 105 pounds, but you actually get to go hang out with real wolves. You've been in Alaska, like you've done so much. And I just kind of want to hear about like, how do you prep for adventures? Like, what do you do is I am desperate to travel again. So it depends on location. If it's USA, I probably don't do super a lot. But if it's overseas, I do a lot because you're going to be without your phone, perhaps. You're going to be without the internet. You're going to just be in a place you need help, perhaps. So I first start by Googling the heart and eye centers of each place to make sure they're capable, able to maybe sort of help me or help me enough to get me on a plane to get me out of there. I always get travel insurance with medical evacuation coverage that allows me to choose my hospital of care so that I can come home where I want to come to which doctor. That's the most important thing to me because I hate explaining my conditions and no one understands when I say it anyway. So I pay whatever it takes to get that insurance. And sometimes I need to ask my doctors if I can even go, because even though I found other doctors, it doesn't mean they would trust me to be allowed to go there. So for example, I always have grown up wanting to go see the mountain gorillas in Africa. And all my life, I thought there's no way in the whole world I'll ever be able to go up that volcano. The heat, the hill, everything being far away from the doctor's remote. I was always told remote is a big no-no. And once I had the second surgery, I thought, I'm going. That's it. But of course, I couldn't just say that and go. 
I had to ask the doctor for permission. I had to train on the stairs for weeks and months. Because of COVID, the trip was postponed, so I actually had years to practice. But, you know, it takes preparation. I can't just roll out of bed and climb a volcano. And I had, I've printed so many documents of like EKGs, which are like showing my heart rhythm. So if something's wrong, they'll see a standard of what was okay and what wasn't. I have lists of my medication. Oh, I, I translate all of my doctor's names and allergies into whatever language I'm going. And I have a printout of that with me at all times. So I can point and never have to say anything. And what else do I do? I carry an encyclopedia in my purse because that's the biggest thing I can think of besides my medical alert necklace. That if it's a different language, just point and get help. Because everyone kind of recognizes medical alert, which it turned out they didn't in Africa, but I didn't need it. It was okay, but it was very difficult. No one there could understand heart conditions. It was very hard to explain why I need to be at the back of the pack. I need to rest. I'm not going to be able to keep up with the old people, even though you think I'm much younger than them. But just just being patient. And that was a challenge for me. I never encountered a place that doesn't understand heart conditions and being slow. But, you know, just, just be patient. Just have an encyclopedia in your purse or backpack you can point to. And extra medicine, always bring doubles, of course, in case you lose something or it goes down the drain. You know, I'm clumsy, but... You never know when you're going to drop a pill. And I don't just bring like the two weeks worth. I bring a month worth because what if you're stuck there? What else? Uh, oh, like have a plan. So if you are at an airport and you're having a problem, have in your mind how you're going to get out of that airport if you can't get help. So like I always look for the sign for the taxi stand or whatever it takes to just get out without maybe delaying because someone's going to say it, you fell, but you can still take care of yourself. I think that's faster to just get out of there than ask for help. So know a way to get out and get help. Those are such incredible. <laughs> Thank you. I, there was another few I hadn't heard before. I do just want to add in one thing. If you are a pain patient, please take a listen to our episode with Kiros. We'll link it in the show notes. But you can hear about how he was arrested at the UAE for his pain medication. So if you are a pain patient, my quick advice is please make sure you get your paper prescription to bring with you. Do not leave without your paper prescription. I went there and I was very concerned they'd take my medicine. You can Google the list of medicines you are allowed in the UAE and every ingredient, which I spent time on because I was no. scared of that exact same thing. And I don't, when you said put your pills in a bottle, I would never do that. Keep them in the, the original prescription bottle. Exactly. And they, they look fishy otherwise. And then the country like UAE, they will call it out. Well, I don't, I used to take them out, but now I never do. Yeah, thank you so much. That's really great advice. We have run out of time and I just look at my tibia. So please, it's, it's fine. I swear this happens daily. I just wasn't expecting it to happen while I was sitting still talking to you. I thought I had at least to move for that to happen. But no, by the way, I do love your TARDIS nail color. That is the cutest nail polish I have seen. Thank you. They're sparkles. I, if I didn't bite my nails, I could have pretty... No, color. this is the cure. I used to bite too, but this this is these are stickers. Yeah, everyone tells me to do that and they aren't even long enough to put stickers on. It's, it's depressing. My daughter is always mad at me about this because she has the most beautiful nails. She likes to rub it in my face. Very cute child. Teenagers are the best. So I have one question left for you, which is what is your one purchase under $100? This is my favorite question because it gives me so much advice and I spend way too much money on this question, but I can't resist. Is there anything under $100 that you bought that was like, yeah, this was worth the money? Like for, for medical things or personal things? Literally anything. Oh, gosh. I'll tell you mine, which is I got this and I'm not sponsored, I swear. Serta, and I talk about this way too much. I got a Serta um, bed mattress that's actually a complete heating pad. So my whole bed is now a heating pad whenever I want it to be. It was $100. It was so freaking worth it if you have muscle pain. Okay, I, I thought of one. So when it's hard to breathe, it's better to be propped up and mm -hmm. pillows don't always cut it. So a wedge pillow is great. 
after I came home from the hospital, I had you can get it at Walmart. We had to run out and get one because we didn't know I feel that way. And the wedge pillow will keep you propped up in a comfortable way in a bed that doesn't adjust. And it's cheap. And I wish I'd had it when I had COVID because breathing on those pillows was not fun. And it's at my parents' house. I wish I had that pillow sometimes. <laughs> Second that. And we have one with like a little pocket next to it so I can keep the remotes in it, which is so cool. Oh, what great advice. Emily, I hope you come back and talk to us again. I still have so many questions I want to ask you about everything from travel to your writing. But this was this is such a treat to chat with you. Everyone, uh, the general supply. Be kind, be gentle, be a badass. You know, check out this incredible biography, autobiography. I certainly can't wait. Emily, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about today's episode, including show notes, transcripts, and more, please visit invisiblenotbroken.com. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support this show by heading over to our Patreon or by sharing these episodes. We are non-advertising and our growth is thanks to you listeners. Thank you to our host Monica and Emily for a great discussion. This episode was edited by me. Luke Spine. Last but not least, be kind, be gentle, and be badass.